Thank you, Michael, for your Psalm 19. What a great way to start the day with the Word of God. Creation is wonderful, you're right, but the Word of God is better. Um, obviously, creation wasn't good enough for most, even though it should have been good enough to convict most. But we have the Word of God, and that's what we're going to dive into today. And with his help, we will understand better. And then, thank you, Daniel, for choosing, Oh, That Will Be Glory. If you understand the reason for um, our, our scripture that, uh, that we have before us today, which you're welcome to turn to now, and that is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul was writing to the Thessalonians because they were, and in this section of Scripture, he was trying to comfort them because they were concerned about those that had died and were in the grave, and, he, and they longed to see them again, and so Paul's words here are meant to comfort those, uh, those Thessalonians, the Thessalonian church, and also to, th- to comfort us that we know that when our brethren die, we will see them yet again, and it gives us great comfort to know that that is coming. That's the context, right? We have been taught very carefully that the context of Scripture is our master. That's how we know what it's talking about. And you'll see uh, in, in a little bit here that, it's simil- that, that this is a similar situation. The context has to rule. But I enjoyed the friends will be there I have loved long ago. Joy like a river around me will flow. Yet just a smile from my Savior I know will be eternal glory for me. Amen. So we will um, get into this idea of the rapture. I've got to describe the heresy first because we can't just start with the good stuff. We've got to start with the error in order to to refute the error. So bear with me as I read to you, excuse me, as I read to you um, 1 Thessalonians 4. I'm going to start at verse 13. I had you start at 17 last night, but I want to get a little more context here in 1 Thessalonians 4. And I guess I need to open my Bible there as well. And we're going to stay in 1 Thessalonians 4. Um, so continue to keep your finger there if we turn to a couple other passages. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting at verse 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light. And the children of the day, we are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, 
but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Um, did you notice I didn't pause and let you know that I, I skipped over to chapter 5? Remember that that's not an inspired chapter break. That's going to be important for us to, to remember as we go through this. So here's what I'm going to do in just a few minutes. We have just a few minutes. Um, first, I'm going to go over the heresy. I have to teach the heresy first because you need to understand where they uh, are coming from. And when I do that, please don't get distracted thinking that I'm speaking uh, uh, for this heresy. I'm not going to give arguments as I go through, as hard as that is, to not try to refute it as soon as I'm talking about it. So I'm going to present their point of view first. Don't get confused. And if you're listening to the um, recording of this, make sure you listen to the rest of it, not just this part. Um, then I will debunk, I'll do my best to debunk um, the pre-tribulation rapture heresy. There's lots of different ways you can do it. I chose five, I think are the most obvious and easy. And, you know, among the mouth of two or three witnesses, the truth is established, so I've chosen five just to make sure in case you find two that you don't like, or even three, because there's still two left. Then I, I want to comment briefly on the importance of rightly dividing the word, because the reality is this is just a, an error in the division of the word. Then there's a little bit on the history of the heresy. I don't have time to get into the history, but I'll comment on that briefly, and then we'll conclude. So let's jump into the heresy of the pre-tribulation rapture, pre-tribulation rapture. This position is held by what we might call futurists, uh, which is regarding eschatology, that they put most of the prophecies out into the future. We're historicists. The other ditch is preterism. And we've, we've gone over those things before, but the point here is the, the rapture part of their eschatology. Eschatology is just the study of future things. So it's held by futurists, and they're also dispensationalists, generally speaking. So that's, a, that's another phrase that's a broader term. A futurist regarding a prophecy and dispensationalist regarding their overall doctrine. So here's the doctrine, and here's the heresy. Jesus comes back for his church, as described in 1 Thessalonians 4, like this. The dead in Christ are first raised, verse 16. Now, that makes sense, and we all agree with that. That's no problem. We're not in disagreement. I've got to not argue this thing. Um, keep your finger there in 1 Thessalonians 14 and turn to 1 Corinthians 15 with me. 1 Corinthians 15, just back a few pages. We know what this is. This is the resurrection chapter. Uh, why are we going to the resurrection chapter if we're talking about uh, a, a rapture that occurs seven years before the resurrection? Not really sure. Let's see what it says. My, my main verse I want to point out here is um, 51. So 1 Corinthians 15, starting at, at verse 51. I'm, I can't read this whole passage to you. Yes, I can. I'm going to read the whole passage to you. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through the end. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, 
Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brethren, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, forasmuch as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Amen. You know how hard it is to not come. I want to teach the truth, not, not talk to you about this lie, but I'm going to pass on. So here we have this. This is a, they, they say it's a description of the rapture, okay? This is what happens, we're, that we changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, and then we're caught up together into the heavens. And then any who are not converted Christians, any who are not converted Christians are left behind. They're still left in the earth. Uh, they get that from Matthew 24. Can't comment on that. Um, so imagine, and you've probably heard many of the great stories that come from this. It's the science fiction of Christianity. There's a word in there that should help you understand fiction, right? The science fiction of Christianity has been told from pulpits. It's in novels. It's been in radio programs and television shows and even on movie screens. Imagine the headlines. Millions missing. How, how dramatic that is. Clothes piled all over the place where people used to be. Crashed airplanes and cars and tugboats running into the, the bridges. It's, it's such a dramatic event. Bumper stickers have been seen on Christians' cars. In case of the rapture, this vehicle will be unmanned. Or the rapture, the only way to fly. You probably have heard of the book The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, which was one of the earlier, more modern books. There was also a series of 16 novels written by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins called the Left Behind series. And from that spawned movies about the Left Behind series. There were three of them, and just a few years ago, they made a fourth, kind of a reboot, as they like to do in Hollywood. The first one, the Left Behind the movie, was in the year 2000 and starred Kirk Cameron and some others. And then Left Behind 2 was called Tribulation Force. This is kind of like the Avengers. And then uh, Left Behind 3 was The World at War, and they added another uh, Hollywood person, Louis Gossett Jr., in there, along with Kirk Cameron. And then a few years ago, in 2014, they did the reboot, and this time they got an A-list actor, Nicolas Cage, to be one of the uh, actors in the Left Behind reboot of 2014. Now, if you like science fiction, these are pretty good. Um, but again, remember, this is fiction. It's it's what they, they say what it is when they describe the movies online, fantasy, sometimes horror, and often fiction. There's no comedy involved, though I laugh at some of the things that they do. Oh, I'm not supposed to comment on that. Okay, there's another series that was, uh, that was introduced to me before that, and that was the series uh, called the um, Thief in the Night series. And those were actually filmed by a I don't know if he was a pastor or not for sure, but a man in uh, Des Moines, Iowa, so not far from where I grew up, and the first one was filmed when I was two years old, 1972, uh, called A Thief in the Night. And we have friends back in Iowa who saw this movie, and maybe you've, you've run into people as well, who were converted to Christianity because of this movie. It scared them to death, and so it scared them to Christ. Um, 
And that's often what the whole idea of this, uh, uh, it's not the rapture that scares people, it's the tribulation that comes after the rapture that scares people. Then they had a distant thunder in 1978, the image of the beast in 1980, and the prodigal planet in 1983. So it's obvious that there's been a lot of, of um, propaganda I shouldn't call it propaganda, I guess, in this case, but there's been a lot of movies and books and, and things written about this doctrine to uh, bolster it and to make it uh, exciting in the minds of its hearers. And so after this event, after the rapture, is this kicks off the so-called seven-year Great Tribulation. There's, a, they, there's seven years of, of increasing difficulty for all those that were left behind, um, and uh, and then the Antichrist reveals himself, and you probably heard about that. We're not going to talk much about the Great Tribulation. It's just that they're saying that this rapture happens before that seven-year period of Great Tribulation. So what they're talking about is, you know, you, 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 you know that there's a second coming of Christ. And you're saying, okay, well, he comes to get his church, and then there's seven years, and then he comes to get the rest. And so what they call that, so that there's no confusion a two-stage return of Christ, okay? I didn't read about it. I'm sorry, not commenting. Christ comes set secretly in the first stage, taking his church out of the world. He is said to be coming for his saints. So Christ returns to the earth secretly, quietly, to get his saints out of the world and take them back with him to leave for seven years. This occurs before the day of the Lord's wrath, as they put it in uh, chapter 5, verse 2. This, this happens before then. The rapture keeps his saints from his wrath, according to chapter 5, verse 9, right? It says, for God hath not appointed us to wrath, right? So the, the wrath of the day of the Lord, they say, is the great tribulation for that seven years. Then the second stage is Christ will come visibly in the second stage to judge the earth, and then he is said to be coming with his saints at that point, because you know that Christ will come with his saints judging the earth. Okay, so that's the two-stage return of Christ. The other reason for this and the, and the, and the, um, the, the postulation is that uh, this is a great motivator, right? This whole idea of a pre-tribulation rapture and all the terrible things that are going to happen in this tribulation should motivate people. And that's what I was talking about with regard to some of these movies. They scared people to Christ because after they saw the movie, they were so scared, they invited Christ into their heart. Now, this, this motivation has m many factors, okay? So one of those factors is it encourages believers through trials and persecutions. When we read what we just read a moment ago in, in chapter 4, we're in 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 4, 11 through 18, that's the comfort that they, that they should get through trials and persecutions, not the great tribulation, those trials and persecutions that come like the death of their beloved brethren. Another um, factor, another uh, benefit or motivating factor of the, of the tribulation, of the uh, rapture before the tribulation, is the focus on the great commission to save others. I mean, if you know that your beloved brother, sister, neighbor, friend, parents are going to have to face this great tribulation if they don't accept Christ, you'll want to make sure that you get out there and fulfill that great commission because you can save them from all of that if they will just hear you and be converted. And of course, they get that from various places, but mostly the great commission that's, that they say is in Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and in Acts 1. Um, 
Another factor and motivating factor of this doctrine is to be busy doing the Lord's work, right? So get busy and make sure that you're doing something. They, they read in 1 Corinthians 15 that we just read, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Because this is going to happen, you should do these things. You should be abounding in the work of the Lord. So again, the tribulation, or I mean, should say the rapture and the tribulation should be a motivating factor for you to be doing the work of the Lord. Another one is they, they should live obedient lives. First Thessalonians 5 says, Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober, being obedient. And 1 John 3, 3, Every man that hath this hope in him, the hope of the, of the tribulation, I'm sorry, I keep saying that, the hope of the rapture, um, every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. So the, the, the rapture is a reason to be purifying yourself and to be holy and separate from evil. Because in Titus 2, we're looking for our blessed hope. And so they say that the rapture is our blessed hope. Understand that they say the rapture is our blessed hope. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Then lastly, another motivating factor of the... Of the um, Rapture is that it, we should be alert to heresy and apostasy to make sure that we're not missing out on these things that might be errors. And again, from 2 Timothy, uh, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears and shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. I hope you understand the irony of that verse. Um, but that's what their motivating factor is, to make sure that they... They seek out and destroy any heresy or any apostasy. Okay, so that's the, uh, that's the motivating factors. So we had, um, we had the description of, of what happens. We have the two-stage return of Christ and the motivations. And then the, the last section is the seven-year Great Tribulation. I'll just make a quick comment on it because that's not the focus of the study. During this period, all those that are left behind can be saved. Hallelujah. They have another chance. So the idea is this is an opportunity for them to wake up to the fact that God is real. They did the, the 2,000 years of the gospel being preached wasn't enough for them, but this should be because they're going to pour out this great tribulation on them. There were special Jews, 144,000 of them, designated to preach the gospel to those that were left behind. Those who are saved during this period will likely be martyred. Unfortunate, but true. And this is a time of judgment where God humbles rebellious men for sin and idolatry. Okay, there's not time to study this, I, as much as I would love to start talking about the, the Great Tribulation, but I hope you know that you can go on the website and type in the witness of 70 AD and learn all about the, the Great Tribulation, that in fact it happened in 70 AD in Jerusalem. The description from Matthew 24 and the other Gospels is fulfilled perfectly in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Um, so the references used most to defend this heresy point to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, not a seven-year period hallucinated from Daniel where the unconverted elect are saved uh, only to suffer persecution until the third coming. Okay, yes, that was a little bit of a commentary. So you can also go to um, our website and type in Making Sense of Daniel and then find chapter 9, which is the 70 weeks of Messiah the Prince, and you'll find how that um, 70 weeks actually works, not the way they say it. Okay. 
So once again, just, just really quickly to review, here it is. The heresy is Christ comes quietly without anybody knowing he's coming, and all the Christians disappear. All the converted disappear, and uh, all of them that were dead in Christ rise up out of the ground first, and then they all meet in the air together with the Lord, but nobody knows it except the ones that are participating. Nobody else knows it. Anybody who was not a converted Christian is left behind to suffer through a seven-year tribulation of great destruction. Um, you know about the two stages, two-stage return of Christ, excuse that they give, their motivations to have the Great Commission, um, and, and what the seven-year tribulation is all about. Okay, so let's debunk this thing. Um, as I read through this and reminded myself about it, um, I, I was reminded of all of the stuff that I used to believe. I believed all this stuff because it's really easy to teach with sound bites, and I don't want to teach you today with sound bites. I hope you'll find I've got a couple of sound bites that, I, that I'm tempted to use because it sounds so good, but it's not right. It's not true. So let's look at the Word of God and see what it says. First of all, to debunk the pre-tribulation rapture heresy, let's start with the word rapture. Please go to your concordance and find the word rapture in your Bible. It's not there. It's not there. It is, the, the word rapture is not in the Bible. The word rapture happens to come from a Latin word, repere. If I knew how to speak Latin, I would speak Latin. But repere, which is from the word rape. Our word in the English language, rape, is derived from repere, which is also rapture. And so it means to seize, snatch, grab, take away, or carry off. Well, what does the Bible actually say? The Bible says caught up. So why change it to such a sensational word that basically is, this, is similar to rape? In this case, it's, it, we know that it's, it doesn't have any sexual connotations, but, the, but being captured or taken up or snatched, why not just use caught up like the Bible did? Why create a word? We know we use words like Trinity, and it's okay to use words outside the Bible to describe a, a, a concept in the Bible. It's okay to do that. So we're not accusing them of, of, of creating something out of whole cloth. You can use the word rapture. The issue is really not the word itself, but the, the seven-year gap that they say occurs before the second coming of Christ or the third coming, whichever they get confused about. So do these pre-tribulation rapture heretics not believe in the second coming? They do. They just can't count very well. It's actually the second coming and the third coming, and sometimes there's a third and fourth in there, depending on how you spin it. The issue is the separation of the event from the coming of Christ to judge the earth. So they're saying that this, this happens, the rapture happens seven years before Jesus Christ comes to judge the earth. But we want to look at what the Bible says about that, and we will. So they put that seven-year gap between the, the first second coming and the second second coming, if you understand my meaning. So the word rapture kind of maybe confuses. We'll, we'll give them that, okay? We'll give them rapture. I don't mind being raptured, if you, if you know what it means, which is, means that if I'm standing here now and the Lord comes back, that I'm going to be changed like we read in 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm going to be caught up together, but those in the graves are going to go before me. They're going to be coming out of the graves, and we'll all meet the Lord together in the air. That just doesn't happen to be discussing everybody else, but they're not left behind for a seven-year rapture, I mean a seven-year tribulation. They're left behind. They're not left behind at all. They're also going to change. They're also going to get eternal bodies, and they're also going to be thrown in the lake of fire with the devil and his saint and his uh, the devil and his fallen angels. Okay, so that's uh, that's the word. But let's let's look at argument number one. They said that this was a uh, a secret and a quiet and an invisible 
shh, coming of Christ. Nobody knows that it's going to happen. What's the Bible have to say about that? Is it invisible? Well, it says, in first, if, if you've got uh, 1 Thessalonians still open, we'll just start right there at verse 16 and 17. It says, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven. L, capital L, lowercase o-r-d, not the Lord Jehovah, the Lord, and this is Jesus Christ, shall descend from heaven. The Bible is silent on an invisible return. If the Lord himself is returning, he, we, we know that, that uh, when the angels said to the disciples in Acts 1.11, which also said, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you in heaven, into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Jesus rose to heaven in his body. He will come back in his body, and he will be seen from as far as the east is from the west, like lightning, right? We know that the, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ will be visible in his return, not invisible. There's nothing in Scripture that says he will come and hide himself in this case. What's the next word? With a shout. He's going to come with a shout. How quiet is a shout? Is there any? Doubt that a shout can be heard. And what's the point of saying it was a shout if it can't be heard? And not only with a shout, but with the voice of the archangel. If Michael the archangel speaks, do you think you'll be able to hear him? What's the point of the voice of the archangel if it's not to be heard? And with the trump of God. The trump of God. Have you ever played a trumpet or heard one played? Dispensationalists like David Cloud claim this trump is different than the trump in Revelation or even the trump that we read about in 1 Corinthians 15. They say there's multiple trumps and multiple trumpets. This one is apparently a trump only tuned. It's kind of like a dog whistle maybe, only tuned to the, those that are going to be raptured. I'm not really sure. You know, we read in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, in a moment in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. The dead shall be raised incorruptible when the trumpet sounds. It's so consistent throughout Scripture, it, it just boggles the mind. But strong delusion has been sent. Okay, then we have the dead in Christ shall rise first. So those who were asleep, in verse 14, come out of the ground first, right? And they which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. So remember, he's addressing the Thessalonians to comfort them because of their dead relatives in the church cemetery. This is to comfort them. Then we meet the Lord in the air altogether. And again, this is comfort because they're going to see each other again with the Lord in the air. That's the purpose. That's the context of this passage. There's no secret for the Lord will be seen and he will be heard. If millions of Christians suddenly disappeared, how would that be a secret? All across the world, if millions of people disappeared and the headlines read that, there's no secret about it. In fact, everybody already knows because, think about it, even the world knows about this science fiction rapture story and mocks Christianity because of it. They had a movie come out in 2013 called Rapture Palooza, which is listed as a comedy slash fantasy, and it stars Anna Kendrick, another A-list Hollywood person. They love making fun of us for, not us, but Christians that believe this because, because it is such a farce. It's, it's science fiction, and they know that it is. Now, here's one of those places where I'm tempted, and you might be tempted, and the author of one of our favorite books was tempted. Where did, oh, it got buried. Here it is. You, this book is back on our shelf, and I use this quite a bit to, uh, to do my study for this, and it's Woodrow's, uh, Ralph Woodrow's Great Prophecies of the Bible. Unfortunately, 
He goes to Matthew 24 to make a couple of proofs here. We can't go to Matthew 24. This doesn't have anything to do with Matthew 24, which is all about the destruction of Jerusalem. But we're tempted to do that because it sounds good. See, in Matthew 24, 26, it says, Wherefore, if they say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. So you could use that to refute their whole idea of a secret rapture, right? Because Jesus said not to believe in some secret or to say Jesus is over there and you didn't know that he was here. But Matthew 24 is not about the second, is not about the second coming of Christ right. at all. It's about the destruction of, of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Right. I already told you where you can find out more about that. Sound bites sound good, but don't be fooled by them. Right. It's, it's the reason I preached the wrong thing in the past is because I believe sound bites. Because that's the way people write books, and they have to, because it's not preaching. I mean, it's, a type, it's like preaching, but you can't just take one sermon and say, that's enough for me to understand and believe the entire Bible. It takes a lifetime of study and understanding and also passing it down from pastor to pastor over the years that we might not be fooled by that. So don't follow sound bites. You better know. You better not quote a soundbite um, out of context, because even though it sounds good, doesn't it sound great? Isn't that a great refutation? There's no secret. There's, if Jesus himself said, if they say he's in his secret chambers, believe it not. Can I quote that? No, because it's not about that. All right. So that argument was um, the secret, quiet, and invisible coming of Jesus Christ. The second argument, I think we've slain that, don't you think? Isn't it pretty obvious there's a lot of noise going to happen when Jesus comes to rapture his church? And let's go ahead and use the word rapture, to rapture his church. There will be a lot of noise. Okay, the second one is, argument number two is that he comes as a thief in the night. So they point to this phrase that's found here and in 2 Peter as uh, to prove that it's a secret, okay? This is another that they bolster to be a secret coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it's not known to everyone. But the point is that it's not how he will come acting like a thief, okay? You have to understand these differences, these nuances. After describing the catching up of the church, Paul shows the timing is unknown, like a thief's coming. In verses, five, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, But the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. The day comes as a thief in the night. You don't know when that robber is going to come and, and rob your house. That thief is going to come and rob your house. It's not that Jesus had a mask on so you wouldn't know who he was in his coming. He's not coming like a thief in that way. He's coming in a way that you don't know when it's going to happen. <clears throat> so the argument is, it's, it's, it's supported when we look at the version in 2 Peter. So let's keep our finger where we're at, turn a few pages back to 2 Peter chapter 3, and we'll see the other phrase, a thief in the night, in 2 Peter chapter 3. So, again, understand the difference. It's not how he comes as a thief in the night, it's when he comes as a thief in the night. So here we have in verse 9, 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is longsuffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. What do you notice about this? When he comes as a thief in the night, everything gets burned up. Right. Not everybody gets raptured. He comes as a thief in the night to, to take his children out of the world and to destroy the earth all at once. 
all at once, all tied together. This phrase proves that it is exactly when the earth is destroyed in judgment that Jesus comes as a thief in the night. In our passage that Paul wrote instead of Peter, um, Paul warns that those trying to avoid thinking about Christ's return declare peace and safety, but what do they get? Sudden destruction. Well, there's no sudden destruction in the seven-year tribulation. It takes seven years. Okay, the sudden destruction comes exactly when the Lord returns. The second coming is all one event. It happens all at the same time. So the point of the, th of the uh, thief is that believers should watch and be diligently ready upon his arrival to break in. It has to do with the timing of his coming. Christians should prepare to be not caught off guard. Verse 4, 5, 4 says, you know, don't be in, you're not in darkness so that it should overtake you as a thief. You should be awake and ready and not drunk or sleeping. You should be behaving properly, righteously to avoid shame when Christ comes to get you. It's the, it's not going to be a deciding factor of whether he saves you. And this is, this is a future argument that I'm going to show, but if, if you understand that you are saved, there is no way you're going to lose that salvation. So whatever he finds you doing when he comes, if you're an elect child of God, you will be taken into heaven, whether you appear to deserve it at the time or not. But the point is you will be ashamed if you are not behaving properly and rightly. And that's the warning that he's giving the Thessalonians here is be ready. Don't be asleep and drunk. Be ready and alert, ready for the Lord to come. Okay, so that second argument was as a thief in the night. We've debunked that. It's not a secret. It's a, that has to do with when he's coming, not how he's coming. All right, argument number three is to escape the tribulation, right? So one of the biggest problems that they have is they misidentify Daniel's great tribulation as a future prophecy. And so that corrupts their uh, understanding and causes them to manufacture a pre-tribulation rapture because of the verse 9 that says that God has not appointed us to wrath. So because they think there's a rapture where wrath is poured out, I mean, I'm sorry, I keep switching those words, because they think there's a tribulation where seven years of, of really bad stuff happens, that's the wrath of Jesus Christ that they need to be saved from. So then they manufacture this great, um, this, this uh, tribulation, sorry, this rapture. What is wrong with my brain? Rewire it. Okay. So remember that context is our master. First, so 1 Thessalonians 4.13 sets the stage. Again, sorrow for the death of brethren. That's the context that we're reading about. The Thessalonian church was overcome with sorrow about their dead brethren. Verse 18 tells us what the purpose was. Verse 18 of chapter 4, to comfort them and to comfort each other. The chapter breaks not inspired, so skip it and keep reading. I've written in mine, keep reading. I put an arrow right here to remind me not to just stop there. Keep reading. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, describe the pending event. What's going to happen? Christ is going to come. So it's the same. It's all the same topic, all the same event. There's not two things happening there. Again, 5.11 states the preceding provides comfort. If you look at verse 11, what we read already, wherefore comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also you do. So just like at the beginning of this sermon when I told you what I was going to tell you, this is a, a briefing um, so I told, tell you what I'm going to tell you, then I tell you, and then I told, tell you what I told you. That's, the, that's what Paul is doing here. He told them what was going to happen. They should comfort one another. He told them how it was going to happen and that they should use this to comfort one another. It's all one topic. It's all congruent. It all stays right together. The context is our master. If you can't remember uh, the teaching on context, you can look up slaves to context on our website. 
Jesus warned his disciples that they would have tribulation in the world. He did. He warned them of tribulation. Right. He said in John, uh, in John 16, 33, These things I have spoken unto you that ye might have, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Amen. So he told them they would have tribulation. Why is it that the pre-trib rapture people want to take them out of tribulation? If there really was a seven-year tribulation coming, Jesus said they would have tribulation. And not only the disciples, because they will argue to you, oh, well, that was just Jesus. But remember, Jesus prayed I pray, in John 17, the next chapter, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou shouldest keep them from the evil. Right. So he didn't pray for them to be taken out of the world. And, and um, the pre-tribbers say, well, that doesn't count because um, the, the issue is that was for them, not for us, right? That was, he didn't pray for the disciples to be taken out of the world. They had to go through their little tribulation. But actually he did, because just five verses, six verses later, he says, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. So Jesus didn't promise that we would be saved from any kind of tribulation. Uh, he did promise that if you'd listen to him in Matthew 24, you could avoid being in the tribulation that occurred in Jerusalem in 70 AD. There were lots of warnings there for them to get out uh, of the city. But uh, if we have difficulties, let's, let's back the word tribulation down to trial or difficulty or temptation, uh, you know, of course we're going to have those. So this whole idea, this whole escapist mentality that we're going to escape difficulties in this world um, infests a lot of Christianity. In this case, they're saying, we know this big, terrible tribulation is coming. We've got to make sure that there's nobody left behind to have to suffer through that. Now, um, almost always when there's a, a warning in the New Testament, it's for Christians. There aren't there aren't any warnings really in the New Testament for unbelievers. Right. How would they hear the warning? I mean, if you go out in the in the street and preach street preaching like some do and warn of these things, you know what's going to happen to you. You know, you're you're casting your pearls before swine. Uh, the dog is going to turn and or the the sow is going to turn and rend you. Um, so the warnings are for us. So what are what are these warnings for? What, what wrath are we going? There's a warning here. God, I, I admit there's a warning. God hath not appointed us to wrath. But if the, first, if the tribulation isn't there, that's not the wrath we're talking about. There is a wrath that is coming, and he's saving us from that wrath, and it's called the second coming of Jesus Christ to judge the world and to destroy it. The wrath isn't the tribulation of Daniel, which we already proved was, was a farce, but it's the wrath poured out at the second coming of Christ. Verse 9 begins with the word for. So when we look at verse 9, for God hath not appointed us to wrath. If we're not appointed to wrath, who is? Well, it isn't other Christians. It is not other Christians. See, that's the other thing. I don't really address this in my outline. They kind of create these two classes of Christians, the, the, the pre-rapture Christians and the post-rapture Christians. I can't find that in the Bible. I didn't try to bother... Uh, getting that as a separate argument because it isn't even there. I don't know how you argue from, from nothing. So who is appointed to wrath? Of course, we know that all the reprobates are appointed to wrath. And I'll get to the fact, some of those facts that make it much easier than, than you know, um, cutting up these arguments that they have. We can start with something much easier than this. So remember that these are verses of comfort to the Thessalonians. You're not appointed to wrath. And the people that are in the grave that are your brethren are not appointed to wrath. We're going to take care of it. My father and I are going to take care of it. 
And, th- and how are we going to do that? We're going to make sure you're not even on the earth. You're going to be in the air with the Lord forever and not have to worry about the fact that the earth is about to burn up and that you're going to be thrown into the, uh, the lake of fire. So the escape from the destruction of the world along with all other believers is a great comfort to believers. It shouldn't be a comfort to any that aren't, but it's written for them anyway. Okay, argument number four. That argument we just finished up with was the escape from the tribulation. Argument number four is left behind. Left behind. Matthew 24 is where they get this phrase from. We're not going to bother reading Matthew 24 um, for the sake of time, but... I'll give you a little bit of it. They knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall be two left in the field. The one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding in the mill. The one shall be taken and the other left. Okay, they were left behind. It's terrible. Left behind to suffer great tribulation and so forth. But the context is very clear in Matthew 24. Maybe I should read it. I'll just, I'll read it to you so you don't have to turn. The, if they go up a few verses, start at verse 37. But as... The days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until that day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. Now, that is not took all the people in the ark away, okay? It was everybody else outside the ark that were taken away. In what way were they taken away? They were all killed. They all died in the flood. That's how they were taken away. The next verse says that uh, is how the coming of the Son of Man is going to be. There will be two left in the field. The one shall be taken and the other left. Matthew 24 isn't about the the second coming and the destruction of the earth. Everybody's going to be taken in some way at that point, either taken up to be with the Lord, caught up, or be taken into the lake of fire. But this is about Matthew 24, which I can't teach on, is about the tribulation that was on Jerusalem in 70 A.D. It was a warning. It's so obvious. It was a warning. Get out of the city. You're going to die if you don't get out of the city. Mm -hmm. It's half the people there. One's going to be taken and the other's going to be left. The ones that were left were alive. Okay. A careful reading reveals that those that were taken are killed, not raptured. That's, that's patently obvious. The warning of verse 42 about the Lord coming in his, in his great power and glory in, in Matthew that I didn't read to you. Verse 42 says, Watch, therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. That's not the second coming. That's the coming in great power and glory. He doesn't come visibly. He comes by judgment to destroy the wicked men and the wicked people that killed him in Jerusalem. I can't preach on the, on the uh, tribulation of 70 A.D. Okay, argument five. So that one was the left behind argument. Argument number five and the, and the final one uh, of their arguments that I'm going to deal with today is the two-staged second coming. All right, 70 A.D. How many, how many second comings are there? Well, 70 A.D. wasn't his second coming as he didn't come in person like I just told you, but in judgment and destroying the wicked Jews who'd killed him. The Bible only speaks of one second coming. When you, when you re- stu- read and study the Bible you will only find that it only ever mentions one second coming and never mentions any stages at all. There's nothing that looks like a stage, sounds like a stage. This two-stage second coming is a construct that they need to avoid the obvious fact that their doctrine doesn't fit Scripture. So they have to create something to make it fit, which is right when you start to 
question whether or not they even know what they're talking about when they create something that they can't point to in Scripture. They try. They try really hard, but it's, it's uh, pretty weak. So this is like the great heresy of the pause, sometimes called the comma, between the 69th and 70th week of Daniel, right? So they're the same people that say, yeah, those 70 weeks of Daniel, well, we got to week 69, and then we had to put it on pause for 2,000 years, and, and they consider the 70th week of Daniel their great tribulation, their seven-year, that's where they get the seven years, right? Their, their seven-year number of this tribulation comes from the prophecy of Daniel in uh, chapter 9 of Daniel, and I already mentioned, look up uh, Making Sense of Daniel chapter 9. So, you know, they, they're consistent anyway. They just create things out of whole cloth, and they have to bend and break Scripture to say things like, yeah, there's just going to be this indefinite pause. We're not really sure how long it's going to be. You know, this was a very carefully timed prophecy where it was given very specific from the decree that the, of the temple to be rebuilt until now is going to be this many weeks, and then there's going to be this many more weeks, and 70 total weeks, but there's just going to be this indeterminate gap. This is a similar heresy in the same way. Okay, number two regarding this second stage coming is that there's a, there's a, they get tripped up, and this is why I wanted to read to you this morning for the opening, 2 Thessalonians 2. 2 Thessalonians 2 said, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. This is the key. We know and understand from Scripture that first, Antichrist has to be revealed. Their teaching says that Jesus comes and takes his church, and then Antichrist is revealed. They get it totally backwards, and it's plain reading of Scripture. So this is one of those that's just like, okay, well... You can't argue very long about this one. If they don't get it from that, they're probably in trouble. If you need more about that, dispensationalists, just they believe that, um, that the Antichrist is revealed after the rapture. They say it very plainly. I looked up lots of timelines. If I was doing uh, slides, I would put them up on the screen for you to see. They don't understand it. They, they don't get it at all, um, and, and they just deny it. So the Antichrist, you may know, and, and children, if you don't know, this is a great thing to, to understand. The Antichrist in the Bible... John uses it in his um, epistles, are the popes of Rome, the popes of the Roman Catholic Church. The Church of Jesus Christ has known that for 2,000 years. Well, you know, just short of 2,000 years. Um, They were revealed long ago. So this this scripture is fulfilled. This man of sin has been revealed for hundreds and hundreds of years. He was revealed. They were revealed when the emperors of Rome were removed and replaced by the Holy Roman Empire. The man of sin has been revealed for for, uh, 1,500 years or more. If you wonder about this, you can go look up the Antichrist uh, sermon in, on the website, or the Rome Connection is another good one from 2005. The outline is out there. Okay, so I gave you five arguments, and I've, I, I hope that we've stabbed the, uh, uh, the spear, the lance, right through that dragon called the pre-tribulation rapture. We started with the word rapture, but the argument number one was secret, quiet, and invisible coming, loud, visible, the Lord Jesus Christ with the trumpet and the, the voice of the archangel. Argument number two is a thief in the night. It's not how he came, it's when he came. That's the thief in the night. The escape from the tribulation, this escapist idea, they're, they're, they aren't escaping from the tribulation, they're escaping from the second coming. That's really something to escape. You don't want to be on the earth when it's being burnt up and the lake of fire is being created. Um, 
So Jesus is giving, or I mean, should, should say Paul is giving great comfort to the Thessalonians by indicating that they are escaping, but it's the wrath to come is the second coming of Jesus Christ to destroy the earth in judgment. The fifth argument, I mean, the fourth argument was the left behind argument, that they can't even read scripture and understand it. The fact that those that were left behind were alive, not dead. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how to help him on that one. The argument number five was the two-stage coming, which doesn't exist in the Bible at all. There's, not, there's no indication of a two-stage coming. He came, there was sudden and immediate destruction. In each time that we read it, there's sudden destruction, there's immediate destruction, not seven years of drug out destruction. Okay, so those are the five arguments. Um, now I want to just briefly wrap up here with the importance of rightly dividing the Word of God. All of this, all of this 30 or 40 minutes of time frankly, wasting with you about this heresy, which I hope you don't believe, um, could have been avoided if, a, if people would take the time, if ministers would take the time to rightly divide the Word of God. Right. It's not a privilege uh, to understand Scripture. Scripture's not written plainly for, for a common man to understand. Otherwise, there would not be the admonition to Paul to rightly divide the word of truth. In 2 Timothy 2.15, study, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Arminianism. It starts with Arminianism. If you don't understand salvation, you're going to get messed up when it comes to prophecy. If this error wasn't present, there wouldn't be any room for coming to Christ during a so-called tribulation after a rapture because nobody's coming to Christ then. See, all the elect would have been raptured. There wouldn't be anybody left behind to be saved because he would have taken all of them. There's not two classes of Christians, the, the, the saved and they know it and the saved and they don't know it. We, we do. We call them unregenerate elect, or I mean un, unconverted elect is what I meant to say, unconverted elect. But who, who cares about unconverted elect? They're saved too. When Jesus comes, he's taking them too. Whether, whether they know it or not, doesn't matter. Their state of mind, their knowledge of whether or not he is Lord makes no difference. The error is that these Arminians think that you get saved by doing something, by praying to the Lord Jesus Christ, by accepting him into your heart. That's one mistake in rightly dividing the word that creates this domino effect of other heresy after heresy. If we just go back to Arminianism, get them all converted to... Um, to what we believe, which is election and predestination, boom, it's all over. Who's going to be left behind to be converted? None of them. We don't need it anymore. The pre-tribulation rapture presses Arminians to push the false notion that the Great Commission applies to them. They think that the reason for the Great Commission is to save people from the tribulation. That's ridiculous. And maybe they also think that they're going to save people from the second coming of the Lord in the first place, but we all know from our understanding of salvation that you can preach to a dead corpse all you want until the Lord Jesus Christ says live, that person will be dead and will not accept the, the truth. Okay, the second is the great tribulation itself in, in terms of uh, a misdividing of scripture. The common error is that there's a coming great tribulation and that confuses men. If you didn't have that misconception, if you understood, somebody asked me earlier, you know, what's the most important prophecy that we have, you know, that, that our understanding of the most important uh, of all the different aspects of prophecy, what's the most important? I said 70 AD. The understanding that 70 AD happened in Jerusalem, I mean, that the destruction, that the Great Tribulation happened in Jerusalem in 70 AD is what watershed for me. 
right. it, it put everything else into place. If you know that that's already happened, then and if you were taught that it was all in the future, because futurists teach that most prophecies in the future, then you start to go, well, what else are they pushing out to the future? What else has already been revealed and, and fulfilled in the past? And so the Great Tribulation error um, and, and this idea of a two-stage rapture that they're bookending, you know, this, the first rapture, and then I guess there's another rapture, really, because all the people that were killed in Christ have to be raised again. So that's like the third resurrection, which I didn't read about in the book of Revelation. Um, you know, it's really confusing. So it's our, our, our truth is so simple. It may seem difficult because we have to study the scriptures to find it and understand it, make it all fit together, but it's not really that difficult. It's not really that difficult. All right, the history of the heresy, I can't touch today. This book has uh, 11 pages from, from page 32 to 42. You can find a history and where this came from. Then you can go find David Cloud's recent email if you get those. Um, and he has a history as well, and he likes to point back to church fathers like Origen to prove that this was back then, in which I say, amen, great. Go ahead and point to Origen if you think he's a, um, a true minister of the gospel. We don't, of course. We know that he couldn't figure out some things. I can't go there any further. But this is a great place if you want to study the history. Go ahead and go to this little blue book. It's, there's 30 or 40 of them back there on the shelf. Take it home with you. Okay, let's wrap up. Now, let me help you understand this was not an exhaustive. Please don't go get my outline if it gets published and take it and, and go to argue with somebody uh, about this. Use it as a starting point, a launching point to study if you're not familiar enough because I've only touched on, a, on the tip of the iceberg. Remember that due to its wide acceptance among most Christian denominations, there are hundreds and hundreds of books defending it. And so there's always going to be an answer out there for something that you think you come up with that you're clever about. You know, I may sound pretty clever here, and I was just using other men's work, but the reality is there have been people out there defending this for 150 or 200 years, and they've got answers to everything you're going to bring to them. If you want to get in debates, I, I suggest to you it's not worth it. Um, it's better to find somebody who's willing to uh, put away what they think they know and, and learn. The challenge of defeating a heresy is that it's not always well-defined, and thus it's hard to pin down. And this is one of those that's like that, even the same author. You go from one thing to the next, and you're like, wait, you just contradicted yourself. I don't understand how these two things you just said fit together. Each defender of a heresy takes a different tack, right? Like a ship, you know, that's a, that's a course of a ship. Each one takes a different tack, and thereby it makes it difficult to address every nuanced position. I've set up straw men, and I knocked them down thoroughly, but they're straw men. I mean, I think they're true. I think this is generally what they believe, but understand a straw man argument when you're standing in front of a, a crowd like this is not a very strong uh, logic position. So defending in person to person, debating and defending is really much more difficult than what I just did. Okay, and proper doctrine in all areas of the Bible is critical. I just said rightly dividing the word, so proper doctrine is critical. If we don't hold the other doctrines and we don't have a, a basis to stand on to defend what we believe, building a doctrine on an error is like building a foundation that's off. The further you go up, the more the building leans to, the, to that direction, and the more either correction you have to make, or it's just gonna, not going to be a strong foundation, and the building's going to fall. Right. You know, it's private interpretations that are often used to defend an indefensible heresy. Right. Scripture says, knowing this first, in 2 Peter 1.20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Right. See, when you take Scripture and, and it doesn't agree with other parts of Scripture, it's a private interpretation. 
if, you're, if your understanding of a passage contradicts other areas of Scripture, you've got to resolve that. It's you that's in error, not the Bible. So you have to resolve it. That's what the private interpretation is. And so that's where these indefensible heresies are defended, is they create these private interpretations um, to make it sound good, but it's really just a soundbite and indefensible. And this method of uh, creating these, these um, uh, interpretations creates unreasonable circular reasoning because they'll go back and say, well, this great tribulation is why we have to have the, the rapture because we can't leave Christians in the earth because God said that they're not going to be there for the wrath, you see? And so we need to have this rapture come before so the Christians don't have to go through the great tribulation. And we need that because we need to make sure that we get out and preach because the great commission will help save all these people from the tribulation, see? So it just builds upon itself and creates circular reasoning. So it's really difficult. With more time and effort, I'm sure much more could be included and added to this. The main point today to get is that you know a little bit about the heresy and what they teach. You know that you can debunk at least five of their arguments fairly easily from the Bible. You know the importance of rightly dividing the Word of God to everything that we do. There's a history that you can go out and research. It's not really too relevant, but if you're interested in knowing a little bit more, and uh, I hope that what you will take away from this is that we have the very words of God, like Michael talked about in, in Psalm 19. If you love this book, if you want to know it inside and out, it includes things like prophecy. You might say, oh, what difference does it make? I'll find out when it comes, right? Well, there's a reason that God revealed it to us, and it's not obscure. It's pretty straightforward. There's a time coming when the Lord Jesus Christ will return, and he will destroy all the wicked, and he will meet you in the air, and I want you to sing, and, the, and Paul wants you to sing, and the Lord wants you to be able to sing like we sang that we will see the smile on his face when we're coming to greet him because he is going to say to us, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. May the Lord Jesus Christ be praised. Amen.